Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. It's good to see you all. Y'all had a good week? Yeah? Oh, I like that. Yeah, somebody's happy right there. Scriptures say, I was glad when they said to me, Let's go to the house of the Lord. Okay. That's what we're doing this morning. What an honor and a privilege it is. Um, we uh, started a series a couple of weeks ago called You Asked For It. Uh, it's kind of a catchy title for really a series that's built around questions that are coming from you, from our church. We, we gave our church the opportunity to submit questions about anything and everything, and we took what we felt like were I, don't, I hate to say the best questions because all of them were good questions, but we just, just kind of tried to be led by the Lord as to what questions we wanted to address in sermons on Sunday morning. And so we did that for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue that today. But we've got a special treat. Uh, my good friend, our good friend, uh, Brian Onkin and his wife Sue are with us this morning. And many of you are familiar with Brian and Sue. Uh, Brian's taught here many times before on Sunday morning and classes that we've hosted. Uh, he leads a ministry called The River. And uh, he's really an elder to our elders. Um, he's a gift from Jesus to this church in that way. And so every time he comes, we receive him as such because I'm telling you, your pastors and elders are so grateful for his voice in our lives, uh, his leadership, his, his advice, his wisdom, his counsel, and we're certainly always thrilled every time he comes to serve this church. And so he's going to break open the bread of life this morning, and he's going to answer one of your questions, and I'll let him tell you about what that is. But would you just stand and welcome Brian as he comes to teach us this morning? is amazing. That is this good news. That's what the gospel word means. It really is. The gospel really is breathtaking, great, amazing news. And I don't want you to lose sight of that. Um, we've been singing about it all morning. It is marvelous and wonderful, and we need to see that and hear that. Um, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at some text together. Um, it'll be on the screens. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'll encourage you to open there. Ephesians chapter 2 is Paul is summarizing in his letter to the Ephesians a little bit about what this gospel, this good news is about. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul is reminding the Ephesians, and this morning we're being reminded that this good news, this gospel is, is a but God kind of thing. You, you were, we were all dead. Dead, separated from God, no experience of real life. Yeah, you breathed, you had biological existence, but you didn't have real life. But God, in his mercy, made you alive. That's amazing. That's, that's breathtakingly good, good news, and we can't lose sight of it. Peter picks up the same kinds of idea in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. 
Peter writes and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you hear Peter's words? Peter says, he caused you to be born again. And this is this idea that that you had no life and man, he gave you life. You were dead and you were made alive. And Peter underscores the fact that not only were you dead and he made you alive, but now there's an inheritance assured and promised and kept and reserved for you in heaven. And now currently you are being kept by the power of God to live into the life that you have been given and ultimately to receive the inheritance that is being kept for you. And just just think for a moment about that very common phrase that we use in the church about being born again. The first one to use that was Jesus. He used it once. We use it all the time. He used it just once in talking with a religious guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, starting in verse 3, listen to how Jesus speaks with a religious guy who's come to ask him about the kingdom. John chapter 3. Starting in verse 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now here Jesus uses the the language of born again. That's what Peter used. That's where Peter got it from, from Jesus. And what is Jesus saying here? Nicodemus, something dramatic has to happen to you has to happen to you. That's the born-again language. Think for a minute about your first birth, your first birth, right? How much did you have to do with that? You just chose to be born, right? Well, why did you just use born-again language? Because there's something that must happen to you. This is the born again. And Jesus says it's a work of the Spirit. You get born again. The gospel, the good news is that God works through his freely bestowed sovereign grace to cause those who are spiritually dead to come alive in Christ. The gospel is that God works through his freely bestowed sovereign grace to cause those who are spiritually dead to come alive in Christ Jesus. You might remember the account in John chapter 11 of a formerly dead guy named Lazarus. He doesn't stay dead, John chapter 11. And although that's a natural picture, it is a picture of what, in fact, happens to us in being born again. Lazarus is dead. He's in the tomb. He's behind a big rock. Jesus simply says, Lazarus, come out. What happens? Lazarus is alive. You were spiritually dead, in a sense, behind the big rock, separated from life with God. And by a sovereign work of grace, the living God speaks and the gracious Savior rescues and the powerful spirit engenders life and you came to life. And like Lazarus who walked out of a physical tomb, you walked out of a spiritual grave and you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You were made new in Christ by his doing. But God did that. God did that. This is the great good news. And that's what we were celebrating this morning in our songs. Don't lose sight of the amazing thing that happened. It is a challenge. It is a challenge to our thinking to grapple with this idea that getting saved or coming to life in Christ is wholly a work of grace. Not just H-O-L-Y, holy work of grace, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, entirely, completely a work of grace. But it is. 
Jesus affirms it, Paul affirms it, Peter affirms it, the gospel is clear. In fact, in, in addition to what Jesus said to Nicodemus, he says things like, in John chapter 6, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. No one comes of their own. The Father draws, the Father grants life. Because he grants life, we believe, and in believing, we experience this life. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, no one knows the Father except those to whom the Son reveals him. And no one knows the Son unless the Father reveals the Son. The, the gospel is about this incredible thing that God does in taking those who are spiritually dead and making them spiritually alive. Here's how I want you to think about it. No one's going to stand on heaven's shore one day and say, I deserve this. I worked hard to get this. I, no one's going to say that. Everyone on heaven's shore will fall on their knees and proclaim, worthy are you because you rescued me from death and deadness. Everyone will say that. Because if everyone doesn't say that, then everyone is not giving him all the glory. Do you understand? All the glory is his because it's his fault that you're there. Do you understand? You get no credit. If you get some credit, then you get some glory. No, he gets all the glory because it is entirely his fault that you have life. So we rejoice rightly, we celebrate rightly because the greatness of God the Father and our Savior Jesus Christ who through the Spirit has granted us new life. But knowing that, it does raise a question. And like Bradley said, this morning we're answering a question. Questions are great. It's right to wrestle with questions. I don't know what your church experience has been like before you came to Res Church but in some churches, it's like questions are, no, 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 we're not going to ask that questions. We're not going to wrestle with questions because the questions are a little uncomfortable. We're not sure. But the fact is, Jesus answered questions all the time. Jesus, in fact, asked questions in his teaching. Uh, people asked him questions. He answered, them question, answered their questions. He invited questions. Paul, in writing to the Romans, Romans 6 and 7, it's questions. What about this and what about that? And Paul answers those questions. It's really right and good. We should be free to ask and answer questions so this morning we're wrestling with a question. If it is true that salvation, that is new life in Christ, is a gift of grace bestowed by the Father through the Son, then why do we share the gospel? I mean, the question is, closer to home, what about those that I love who seem to be disinterested or opposed to the gospel? What should I do about them? Because if, if, in fact, it is a gracious, sovereign work of grace, a work of God that awakens people to faith, why, why then should I talk with them? How should I talk with them? Should I even bother to talk with them? Does it matter if salvation is entirely a, but God caused us to be born again matter? Then, then why share that news? Why, why not just? Let God do God's thing. That's a legitimate question. Now, to answer this question this morning, I'm going to invite you to think. Sometimes in churches we don't. But I'm going to invite you to think really hard about the difference between being responsible and being responsive. The difference between feeling responsible for another person's embracing of the good news and your being responsive to Jesus and the Spirit in the sharing of the good news. We need to think clearly about the difference between feeling responsible for another person's response to the good news and your being responsive to Jesus' call and the Spirit's prompting to share that good news. Now, I want to take you to a text that doesn't specifically talk about salvation but does picture this idea between responsiveness and responsibleness. And we see this difference pictured in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, um, the first part of Acts chapter 9 is the conversion of Saul. And oh my goodness, sometime if you want to know how salvation happens, read that passage. Saul gets converted, gets knocked off a horse, and Jesus awakens him and brings him into life. But what I'm interested in is picking up the story halfway through Acts chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 10. 
Because the Lord meeting Saul, who ultimately becomes Paul, Jesus meeting Saul on the road to Damascus has a commission for him. He's going to send him out to be a proclaimer of the message. But he left Saul blind. This is a puzzlement, right? He um, meets Saul on the road to Damascus. He speaks to him. He knocks him off his horse, shines a great light, commissions him, blinds him, and then sends him into Damascus and leaves him that way. That's, that's a puzzlement. What's going on there? Well, we pick up the account in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. And look what happens. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man named of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, I want you to think well with me about what's going on here. Jesus has left Saul blind in Damascus. Um, He wants to send Saul out to do something, and it'll be helpful if Saul can see. Uh, You notice that Ananias isn't sure that it's a good thing for Saul to see. He's a former persecutor. Really good to keep persecutors blind. They can't pick out Christians. That would be really a good thing. So Ananias is struggling a little bit with this idea that we should restore Saul's eyesight. But think about what Jesus is doing. He is inviting Ananias to go to Saul and lay his hands on him and pray so that Saul's eyesight might be restored. Question, does Jesus need help in restoring Saul's eyesight? Do you think it's like Jesus has had a really bad day? I'm just so tired. Ananias, would you please pick up the slack and show up and restore Saul's eyesight for me? Is that what's going on? I don't think so. So you have to ask the question, is Ananias responsible for the restoration of Saul's eyesight? Apparently not. He wasn't responsible for blinding Saul. He wasn't responsible for commissioning Saul. He wasn't responsible for knocking Saul off the horse. Jesus did all of that. And in fact, Jesus is going to restore Saul's eyesight. But he wants to involve Ananias. So he extends a call to Ananias. Ananias, I want you to go. Now, like I said, Ananias pushes against that a little bit. Uh, Not sure about that because he's a persecutor. Maybe it'd be good for him to remain blind. Jesus basically says, no, you have to go because I showed him your picture. He sees you coming, so you're going to have to go. And I said, okay, I guess I'll have to go. And so Ananias goes, but he doesn't go as the responsible party. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not going because he's responsible for restoring Saul's eyesight. He's going because he's responsive to what the Lord wants for him. So Ananias shows up. He lays hands on Saul, and Saul's eyesight is restored. Here's the truth. The truth is the Lord intended to do something in Saul's life. The Lord was responsible for what was going to happen. But the Lord also intended to involve Ananias. So Ananias was responsive to what the Lord wanted. Not responsible for making it happen, but responsive. This carries over into our thinking about sharing the good news. Apart from a gracious work of God, those who are spiritually dead will never be brought to life. Do you understand that it's not because you're really persuasive? because you're really nice, because the band is rocking. And it's not because of any of those things that anyone comes to life. Unless they're born again, unless it's a but God thing, no one comes to new life. No one is born again because you're so clever, you're so competent, you're so able, you're so nice, the coffee is so good. None of those things are what results in new birth. Think... So often in the scriptures, we watch the Lord moving in the world. 
He's the responsible one, but he invites people to participate with him. I mean, think about some Old Testament stories. Moses is leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, a couple million. They come to the Red Sea. What needs to happen? The Red Sea needs to part. Who's going to do that? Not Moses. God's going to do that, but he asks Moses, hey, raise up your staff over the water, and I'm going to part the water. Is Moses responsible for the parting of the Red Sea? Nope. Is he responsive in the moment? Absolutely. Should he be responsive in the moment? Yep. Is his raising the staff the power that parts the seas? No, it's God. He does that. But he's inviting Moses to participate. Think about Joshua leading the children of Israel into the land, and they come to Jericho. Hey, march around the city seven times. Is that not just a brilliant military strategy? <laughs> Is that going to overthrow the enemy? I don't think so. So what, what's Joshua's response? Joshua needs to simply be responsive. Okay, this is what we're supposed to do. I, I imagine what it must have been like for the commanders of the armies under Joshua, who's the new leader, right? He's just in this for a short while. And now they're going to go into the land, and, and they ask him, so Joshua, what's the battle plan? We're going to march around the city. Great idea. We'll be able to scope out the fortifications. So they march around the city the first day. And now, Joshua, what should we do second day? Let's march around the city. Again? Yes, we might have missed something. Okay, so they do this seven days, right? What kind of strategy is that? It's, it's only responsive to what the Lord asks of him. Ultimately, the Lord overthrows the city. He's the responsible one. I think about Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. What an amazing account. The, the false prophets are there. Do you know this story, right? And Elijah's there, and, and, and you, you get an altar, and I get an altar, and you get a bull, and I get a bull, and everyone gets bulls, and everyone gets altars. No, just the false prophets get bulls. And, and, and Elijah says, okay, you're going to create an altar. I'm going to create an altar. We're going to call on your call on your God. I'm going to call on my God, and the God who answers is the true God. And when Elijah ultimately prays, he says, Oh, Lord, answer and let this people know that you are God in Israel and that I have done all these things according to your word. Elijah's not responsible for the fire to fall. He's only responsive to what the Lord asked of him. The Lord is the one who is doing this. We are not responsible for making new life happen. But we can be responsive to the promptings of God and to the call of the Spirit to share the good news. The fact is, God intends to awaken faith through the proclamation of the message and then invites you to share the message. Not because you're the responsible party, but because he wants you to participate. The sharing is part of God's means by which he awakens faith in the unsaved. He intends both the end I'm going to awaken faith, and the means I'm inviting you to share. So we get to be responsive, but not the responsible party. I, I see this pictured repeatedly in Scripture in Acts chapter 16, verse 4. Paul ends up being directed by the Spirit to go across the sea to Macedonia. He ends up in Philippi, and there he goes to the riverside and begins to proclaim the message. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, we're told this. Excuse me, that's not, that's not the right text. Six, chapter 16, verse 4. I said 6, it's 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 4. Well, that's not even the right text. Hold on just a second. What, what? Thank you. No, that's not the text either, Lord. So what's the text? I know the passage. Somehow I got the text wrong. Mm -hmm. Lord, why am I having a hard time finding the text? It's the account of Lydia. Is it 16? Oh, 14. There we go. Typo. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
So Paul, he leaves Troas, he goes across to Philippi because he's been sent there seeing a vision of the Lord. And in chapter 16, verse 14, he's speaking to those who are at the riverside. And one who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Was Paul responsive? Absolutely. The Spirit sent him there. The Spirit told him to go. The Spirit gave him the words to say, and he said it. And when he spoke, somebody responded. Who responded? Lydia did. And why? Because the Lord opened her heart to believe. The Lord opened her heart to believe. The same kind of thing is seen. Let's make sure I get the text right. Chapter 13. Yep. Verse 44. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. Paul, again, is, is preaching. He's announcing. He's declaring the good news. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But the Jews, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What was Paul doing? I'm announcing the good news. Why? Because I'm responding to the promptings of the Lord. I am telling everybody about the good news. Who responds? Those whom the Lord changes through the proclamation of the message. Um, one other place, Paul actually explains his own ministry this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He's talking about there's a challenge going on in the church in Corinth. There's a little division going on because some say, um, I, I, follow, I listen to Apollos. Some say, I, I, I listen to Paul. The really spiritual ones say, I just listened to Jesus. But so there's this division going on in the church, and Paul is trying to clarify how ministry goes forward, how the kingdom advances. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is what he writes. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labors. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. What's Paul saying? It's not about, we're messengers, but it's not about us. It is not us that brings about the transformative life. We proclaim the message, and God chooses to work through the proclamation of that message to awaken people to the glorious good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So there's this idea about the difference between being responsible for new birth and being responsive to proclaiming the message. And, and it's, it's there. It's, it's there pictured in the Old Testament. It's there clearly stated in the New Testament. It is why we celebrate that God has made us alive. That's his doing. That it will be heaven's chorus. It's where we live. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be sharing because God intends to involve us as we are responsive to his leading to proclaim the news because it's through the proclamation of the news that he intends to awaken people to new life. Now, in just a minute, I want to give you some practical implications of that. What does it mean? How will we live that out? But before I do that, I'd love to say, since it's a morning where we're asking and asking, excuse me, asking and answering questions, do you have any questions? I mean, I want to open it up to say this idea about the difference between responsible and being responsive, that God awakens people to new birth, and he does that through our participation in the proclamation of the gospel. Before I offer some practical suggestions, do you have any questions about that big idea? Because I want you to be able to see it and understand it. So don't be shy. If you have a question, raise a hand. Sure. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. Good. Great question. I've never led somebody to the Lord. You know, who, the only one who leads people to Jesus 
is the Father. So sometimes we use language that's not quite right. So when Paul writes and says, I plant and other waters, but the Lord brings the increase, I think about Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that we read about, right? Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Jesus doesn't extend an invitation. Doesn't say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, would you like to bow your head and receive me as your savior? Let's have every eye closed and every head bowed. Oh, and it's just you, Nicodemus. Just you do that. No. And see, we would look at that and we go, wait, wait, Jesus didn't close the deal. He didn't lead anyone to himself. It's in a sense, you read John chapter 3 and Nicodemus is left uncertain. What's really amazing is by the end of the gospel, we know that Nicodemus is a, is a disciple. He's become a follower. So when you say that you never led anyone to the Lord, we still have to think through, well, is it possible that the Lord is in fact using bits and pieces, sowing and watering that ultimately he's going to bring to completion in the life of somebody that he's drawing to the sun? I think about the thief on the cross in, in Luke chapter 22. Uh, Jesus is crucified. Luke tells us that there are two robbers crucified with him. One reviles Jesus. The other says to the guy who's crucified with, along with him, says, this guy is innocent. Why are you rebuking him? He's done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, if you read that, we tend to read that and go, oh, you know, um, deathbed conversion, perhaps. But when you think about that, this man knows some things about Jesus. He already knows that Jesus is sinless. He knows that Jesus has not done anything wrong. He knows that Jesus has a kingdom. He knows that Jesus is entering into the kingdom. How did all that happen for the man? Someone must have been speaking. Someone must have been responsive and leading and teaching and showing and proclaiming. And ultimately, it results in his conversion in his last moments. So when you say, but I've never led anyone to the Lord, well, you might be surprised. There might be a whole bunch of dominoes that have already been placed in the life of somebody else, and you got to place one or two or three of those dominoes. And at the right moment, the Lord clicks them all off. And, and somebody responds. Good. More questions. That's a great question. Other questions? That's it? Wow. Yeah. A little louder, please. Yes. Okay. 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 Yes. 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 Okay. This idea of offering proofs or evidence for the gospel. Um, um, I spent five years working with Christian Research Institute, which is a biblical apologetics ministry, offering reasons for the faith. Um, my personal opinion, I think that the benefit of apologetics is more for you as a believer than for a non-believer. What I mean by that is the benefit of the apologetics is to keep you from being timid about sharing the good news. I do not see anyone in scripture being brought to faith because they've been reasoned into it. It seems to me that Paul says, it is the proclamation of the gospel that is foolishness to the unbelievers, to those who are being lost. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul seems to think that the proclamation of the news, not the argumentation about the news, but the proclamation of the news is the thing that God uses to awaken faith. So I think that the benefit of apologetics is to secure you as a believer. This is really true. This is really true. He really came out of the grave. And we don't have to persuade people that... John writes in John chapter 3 that the light has come into the world, but people don't turn to the light because they love the darkness and hate the light. So something has to change in their affections if, in fact, they're going to come to the light. And I don't think that's by us making the light really nice looking. 
right? I don't think that, and I think sometimes we take an apologetic approach that if we make the light look better to a spiritually dead person that they'll respond. I don't think that's the case. I think it is the proclamation, the declaration of the message. So there is a benefit to apologetics, but I think mostly the benefit to the apologetics is to you. This thing that we believe is true. Jesus really did come out of the grave and there's good reason that you have embraced that. But it's interesting to me that I don't hear that kind of defense made when the apostles are sharing the message in the book of Acts. They simply say, this is true. They simply proclaim it. Read Peter's um, sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. It's startling because he simply declares, God is doing something in Jesus. This, This Jesus who went around and did good, this Jesus whom you crucified, this Jesus God raised up, this is the fulfillment of scripture. And then he ends the message by saying, so let all of Israel know this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ, period. And 3,000 people respond. Why? Because God chooses to back up the proclamation of his message with a converting grace. And so... There's a freedom there. I'm not saying if someone has a question that you not answer it, but I'm not sure that the leading edge of gospel sharing is, let's find a strategic way to convince unbelievers that the gospel is true. I think we should just say it. I think we should just tell it because that's what God intends. Good question, though. Great question. More. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Right, and I don't think this is a gospel either. I don't hear Jesus talking that way. Here's how Jesus speaks. He says, hey, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me, I'll give you rest. If you're hungry, come to me and I'll feed you. If you're thirsty, come to me and you'll get living water. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Um, so in the face of that kind of thing, where, in fact, they're hearing a message of fear rather than a message of grace and goodness, what's the solution? I would suggest the solution is not to fight against the message of fear, but to offer such great good news, to make much of the grace and the goodness of Jesus. That really, See, whether, whether you're talking with someone who doesn't yet know the Lord or someone who has skewed the gospel message, they all need the same thing. They just need Jesus. And so what should we do? We should make much of him. How good he is, how amazing he is, how gracious he is, how kind he is. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God is speaking about the nation of Israel and says, My people have committed two evils. They have turned from me the fountain of living water and hewn for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. So he's talking about the dynamic that goes in, on in the soul when someone is not responding to God. And he says there's two problems. One is they've turned from me the fountain of living water, and the other is they dig holes for themselves, broken cisterns, and suck from a hole in the ground, thinking they're going to quench their thirst. That kind of thing, right? Th- these, these instructions, these cautions, these warnings are about where you're going to find life. No, you're just sucking from a hole in the ground. Well, sadly, sometimes what we do is we try to convince people they should stop su- sucking from a dirty hole in the ground. But it doesn't work if they're still thirsty. Tell them all you want. Don't suck from a hole in the ground. But if they're still thirsty, then they're going to turn somewhere to to quench their thirst. What should we do? We should so enjoy the fountain. 
we should so celebrate the fountain. We should be so satisfied in the fountain that the whole suckers kind of go, well, why aren't you thirsty like I am? Why, why, are you, why aren't you having to pick sand from between your teeth like I do? You know? And ultimately, they begin to see the glorious goodness of our gracious God. And that's the thing that we hold out to them. It was Dwight Moody, I think, who wrote about how, so this is years ago, he said he wrote about how you could tell if people were thirsty. He says you walk in a room with a barrel of cold, refreshing water and a ladle, and you can find out who's thirsty because they'll start to ask. And he said the problem is most Christians don't have any refreshing water. Peter writes and says, always be ready to offer a reason for the hope that lies within you when you're asked. Which suggests we live in such a way that we enjoy Jesus in such a way that people go, what what, what are you drinking? Because there seems to be something different about you. So, okay, let me offer offer just a few practical suggestions about what this really means. First, be really clear about the gospel that is in your own mind and heart. Only that message changes life. What I mean by that is it, it's not wrong to share your personal testimony about your experiences with Jesus, but the fact is your experiences with Jesus is not gospel. Do you understand? Your experiences with Jesus is an experience of the gospel, but the gospel is what God does in and through Christ. So sometimes we, we share our experiences with the gospel and we fall short of proclaiming what God has done and is doing in Jesus. Romans chapter 10, here's what, how Paul says it. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who shall descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For this Lord is the same Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great, that's what we want to focus on. But then listen, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without someone proclaiming? What's necessary? What's necessary is not your telling your experiences with Jesus, but you're proclaiming him. You're declaring him. You're speaking about him. Paul writing to the Corinthians says, when I came among you, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's wonderful to read through the messages in the gospel, I mean, in the book of Acts, and hear how the first followers of Jesus talked about the gospel. Peter on Pentecost doesn't stand up and say, I once was a lonely fisherman. And the business wasn't going very well. I wasn't getting along with Andrew at all. And then I met Jesus. And let me tell I, I caught a miraculous gift, catch of fish. And then let me tell you about the Mount of Transfiguration experience. No. Peter could have done that. Way more than any of us. I mean, he had experiences with Jesus that put all of our experiences to shame. And he never does that. Because that's not the gospel. That's his experience of the gospel. So the first thing is, be really clear about the gospel in your own mind. Get to the place where you really understand it's about the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension and the sending of the Spirit. And God, working through Christ, brings unsaved dead people into life. It's all he's doing. Get really clear about the gospel because that's what you need to share with people. Second suggestion. Be graciously honest in telling the truth every time you have the opportunity. That doesn't mean you say everything. And it doesn't mean that you push to a decision every time. Sure, be, be creative. Jesus is. Only one person does he speak about being born again, Nicodemus. Only one person does he talk about living water, the woman at the well. So it's okay to be creative. But be uncompromising in the truth of the gospel, like Jesus with Nicodemus. He doesn't dance around the topic. He says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you, you can't see the kingdom. 
Peter at Pentecost. You, let all of Israel know that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ a very straightforward, honest proclamation of the truth. I, I think, when I think about this, I think about a friend of mine. He's a doctor. He's a vascular surgeon. So he works with all kinds of problems in your blood flow, particularly in your extremities. And he deals with a lot of elderly patients. And he's explained to me that, that marijuana use creates a particular pattern of disease in the hands and the feet. So he'll have these elderly patients who come to him that have circulatory problems in their toes and blue fingers, and they'll want him to help them. So he'll talk with them and examine them and then finally say to them, well, I'm going to be able to help you with the current problem, but unless you stop smoking dope, you're going to still have the problem. And he says almost invariably they go, oh, doctor, I don't do that. My friend goes, yeah, you do. It's... <laughs> It's really obvious. This pattern is so very clear. He is gracious and yet tells the truth, right? So, so if you, when you're really clear on the gospel, when you have opportunities, just tell the truth. You're talking with someone and, and they talk about feeling distant from God, then find a gracious way to say, well, it's not surprising that you feel distant from God because the only way to be close to God is through a relationship with Jesus because Jesus is the one who makes spiritually dead people alive. And it is by his doing that that happens. But so, so the second thing is be, be gracious and honest telling the truth when you have the opportunity. Third suggestion. Be willing to step into your part, not thinking that you have to do it all. One sows, another reaps. So just step in. You don't have to close the deal. You just have to tell the truth. As much as the conversation will bear. It's really sweet. Watch Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. She keeps the conversation going. He speaks to her, and she goes, that's interesting. Um, tell me more. Do you know what the sad thing is? Most evangelism is done because we feel the need to tell people stuff, and they're not interested in listening. But most of Jesus' conversations go a little different. He says something intriguing, and someone goes, uh, can I know a little bit more about that? Yeah. And he tells them a little bit more. And then they go, can I know a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit more. He doesn't push to the conclusion. He doesn't drive the conversation. But he graciously engages a conversation about the truth. So be clear about the gospel. Be gracious and honest in telling the truth. Be willing to be responsive, not responsible. Responsive in the moment. If the spirit prompts you to say something, then say something. I can remember when I was first dating Sue, who became my wife. She worked at a, at a Marie Callender's in California, and I would walk from my apartment to the Marie Callender's because I would buy a piece of pie, and pie every night was just, like, not good for me, so I had to walk. And I can remember one night um, showing up, and the hostess was polishing the um, hostess stand. Marie Callender's is this restaurant pie shop. Um, old country decor kind of stuff, and it had an entirely brass-covered hostess stand. And at the end of the day, it was always covered with fingerprints and goo and snot and all kinds of stuff. It's just horrible. So she is trying to clean it off with brass polish, and she says, in a moment of frustration while I'm standing there, GD, you know, she just swears because she can't get this clean. And um, when I heard that, I thought, okay, here's an opportunity. I <laughs> I simply said, I was trying to be responsive. I felt a nudge. Say something. Okay. I said, I'd be careful if I said that. She goes, what do you mean? I said, you just asked God to do something. And the fact is, he's listening. And I'm not sure you really want him to do what you just asked him to do. And she laughed, kind of nervously. The next night when I came in, the first thing she said is, yeah, I know, God is listening. And we then had a little bit of a more of a conversation. It's not every conversation ends up with a gospel decision. But there's truth to be shared, and God chooses to involve us. We get to be responsive. So rest then. Here's the fourth thing. Rest in God's ability to save and pray towards that end. You just don't know how God is working, other than the fact that he's working through the proclamation of the truth. You don't know what he is doing in the life of that other person. You don't know which of the dominoes you are that might, in fact, be part of that process. You don't know how far the person is being drawn to have faith awakened in them through the proclamation. But maybe you could participate with it. 
there's stuff that you don't know for certain about them. There are things you know for certain about God and the gospel. So just lean into that. Let me close with two personal illustrations. Not because I think I do it well, but because this is how I've been thinking about the gospel. I think about my mom. My mom was a long-term Catholic. Um, I was raised in a, in a church going home, but mom was Catholic her whole life. Um, when I first came to know the Lord, I shared with my mom about the Lord, talked with her about the gospel. And her response pretty much was, not for me. I got to share with my younger sister. She got saved. I got to share with my younger brother. He got saved. And then I talked with my mom, and she would say, it's not for me. It's for you, you but not, not for me. So I spent lots of years sharing the gospel with my mom and feeling a little frustrated because it was like I was trying to get her across the finish line, and she seemed very far from the finish line. So I asked the Lord, help me understand how I might continue a conversation with my mom. And what happened was I think he helped me see incremental steps rather than merely crossing the finish line. So I remember, well, okay, if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, if in fact they can't believe if they haven't heard, then somehow my mom needs to hear, and the best place to hear is scripture. My mom was a voracious reader. She loved to read mystery novels and political intrigue novels. So I asked the Lord, Lord, would you create in my mom a thirst to read the Bible? She had no interest in reading the Bible. Just create in her a thirst to read the Bible. If you're drawing her, create in her a thirst to read the Bible. I can remember the day she called me and said, Brian, I don't have a Bible. But I would like to have a Bible. What would you recommend for me? Uh, no recommendations, Mom. I'll buy you one. So I bought her a Bible and I sent, sent her the Bible. And so then I asked the Lord, okay, now that she has a Bible, would you, in fact, encourage her in her reading of the Bible? Well, she and my dad, dad worked for Ford Motor Company. They ended up being in England for two years on a project of, with Ford. And she called me one day from England and said, I found the most exciting thing I've ever read. And I thought, a new British author, right? And she said, no, it's the Gospel of John. Really? Yes, she said, they were living in an apartment complex sponsored by Ford, and there were a number of other expats, that is, Americans living in England, and they were all living in the apartment, and there were like four or five women who were having a, quote, Bible study. My mom had never been to a Bible study. So she started hanging out with them. They invited her to the Bible study. She said, I'm reading the Gospel of John. It's the most amazing thing I've ever read. By the time she got back from England, she was saved. And I just, it was dominoes, right? It was dominoes. It wasn't, it was just responsive because he's responsible. One more illustration, one more picture. Um, Rich was my neighbor for lots of years. Um, Rich lived across the street from me. Um, he was a quadriplegic um, he was a Jesus-disliking neighbor. Um, he had jumped off a chair into a pool in a neighborhood um, on a 4th of July weekend after having a little too much to drink and broke his neck and was taken out of the pool quadriplegic. Um, before he got discharged from the hospital, his wife divorced him. I don't want to be married to a cripple. Um, he had two children, um, one young man okay, one daughter who was incredibly out of control. She actually totaled four cars in the time that I knew Rich. And he was quite distraught about life and everything. Um, uh, insurance ran out, so he couldn't keep full-time care, so he had someone that came in the morning, he got him out of his bed, and someone that came in the night and put him back into bed. But through the rest of the night, through the rest of the day, he didn't have any help, so I got called a lot, because I lived directly across the street from him. Um, and he would call and ask me, can you come and turn the heat up? Can you come and close the windows because it's raining? Can you come and cough me? Can you, I mean, just all kinds of things. And Rich hated Jesus. I mean, he was quite adamant about, no, this is horrible. Life is horrible. You don't understand. Life is terrible for me because of what's happened. But I remember that as my journey with Rich. My goal is not to get Rich saved, but my goal is to tell Rich the good news. So time and time and time again, I would share little pieces of the gospel. And we'd have a short conversation. I, I can remember him asking me straight up one time, did Jesus put me in this wheelchair? That's a tough question. But the right answer is, yep. 
it's a wrong answer to say no Jesus had nothing to do with this it talked him completely by surprise you are entirely on your own in all this this is a hard conversation I have a conversation with Rich about yes Jesus has something to do with you being in the wheelchair and he, and he said but, but I would just like to really reach out and hug my kids but I can't do that and I said yeah but what your kids need more than your hug is relationship with Jesus and you can't give them that because you don't want that and we talked some hard conversation there I can remember one time Rich would come and, and park his wheelchair on my driveway because he loved to sit in the sun even though he couldn't physically feel the sun but he'd like to be in the sun and my driveway was higher than his driveway so he stayed in the sun more so I'd come home from work and there he'd be in my driveway and I can remember one conversation with him I, I told him Rich, Jesus knows exactly how you're feeling and he kind of dismissed that and I said no, you need to understand Jesus had his hands nailed to a cross and could not move his hands. And he had his feet nailed to a cross and he could not move his feet. And every breath was hard for him. And that's what you experience. And he knows exactly what you feel. But the difference is he did that for you. And Rich cried that day. But it was still like, no, no, not for me. Jesus doesn't get it. I can remember the morning I woke up and I looked outside my um, door I mean, my window, and across the street, um, one of Rich's caregivers pulled up, and then another caregiver pulled up, and then an ambulance pulled up, and then a fire truck pulled up, and they ended up taking Rich away. Rich um, had a problem, obviously, swallowing food, and he had aspirated some food and, and was in quite a bit of respiratory distress. That wasn't the first time it happened, but this was pretty serious. Um, so they took him to the hospital, and that Tuesday morning, I went to the hospital to see Rich. Um, when I showed up, he was very highly medicated and he was wearing an oxygen mask because he couldn't breathe on his own and wasn't processing oxygen very well. Um, didn't like to be intubated. I mean, he already couldn't move. This was even worse than that. So um, when I arrived, his uh, daughter and boyfriend were in the room and they'd been there most of the night. So they left for a meal and I was left standing there with Rich um, by myself in the room and I looked down on his face, and he, he couldn't talk because he was being he was intubated. And um, and um, I, I said hello to him. It looked like he could he responded to me, like he knew I was there. And so I said, "Hey, Rich, um, uh, I'd just love to read some scripture for you." So I stood next to his bed, and I opened up the Psalms, and I started to read the Psalms to him. And he started to go like this, really clearly shaking his head, no. And I said, "Rich, do you not want me to read from the Bible?" shook his head really clearly no so I sat down and I thought wow that's that's troubling to me I, I don't know what's going on there a few minutes later a nurse came in and adjusted things for him and, and I thought maybe he wasn't saying no to me maybe he was just trying to get the mask adjusted so without asking I stood up and started to read scripture again <laughs> and Rich again shook his head no really clearly no you don't want me to read scripture to you so I sat back down, and I'm thinking, this is, this is a tough thing. Rich knows the gospel. I've shared with him so much over the years, little bits and pieces. So I prayed. It's not my effective sharing, Jesus. This is your doing. I asked the Lord, Lord, do not let Rich win. If you could knock Saul off his horse, now Rich is close to the ground. He's about as low as he can get. But if you could knock Saul off the horse and rescue him, you could do this. To rich just under my breath I'm praying I remembered Jacob wrestling with God and God pinning Jacob to the ground to bless him and I just pled with the Lord do not let I just wanted to participate with the Lord do not let rich win you win here in this situation and after I'd prayed for a little while I leaned forward I, I knew that rich couldn't hear me praying so I leaned forward to his bed and I whispered in his ear and I said rich you don't have to fight anymore you, you could just surrender. And Jesus will rescue you. You don't have to fight anymore. And he's lying there on the bed. And he turns his head and looks at me and goes like this. And I asked him, Rich, are you saying yes to Jesus? And he goes, it was the end of a long series of dominoes. I'm not responsible for that but I loved being part of the process. I loved being responsive to the promptings of the Lord in that moment. We are witnesses. 
we are testifiers of the truth of who Jesus is and what he did in coming and dying and what God does in awakening faith in others. So passionately, graciously, thoughtfully, continually share that message and trust God to bring people out of the grave. Let's pray. Oh my goodness, Father, there's a room full of people who know you. There's a room full of people who have life with Jesus. There are a room full of people who are indwelt by the Spirit. There's a room full of people who could testify. They don't have to persuade. They don't have to close the deal. They could simply make much of what you are doing in your son as they respond to the promptings of your spirit. And you, you just might graciously awaken people to new life. As the news gets announced, your spirit brings it home to the hearts of the spiritually dead. And we get to watch new birth. Oh, give us a gracious, free boldness to live there and make much of the sun through our telling his story to those who need to hear. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.